Hello and welcome to the first episode of Stop Button Favorites, a podcast of the website thestopbutton.com. My name is Andrew Wycliffe. My website is thestopbutton.com. Stop Button Favorites is a monthly podcast releasing each month on the 20th of the month. This is the first episode, like I said. Each month will be a new commentary track. I picked some of the subjects. Readers of the site picked the other subjects. This first episode is about King Kong 1976, directed by John Gullerman. I am watching the 1999-ish, 2000-ish Paramount home video DVD release of King Kong. They relabeled it. They re-released it with different cover art after 9-11, but I'm hoping the transfer is the same and time codes will sync up. There is a HD DVD and Blu-ray release of King Kong from the UK, France, and some other places. Unfortunately, I don't know how those time codes correspond. I'm going with the Paramount DVD release, which is a nice 16 by 9 dual-layer disc release. So, And here we go. So here we've got the new Paramount, or the 90s Paramount, sort of pre-CGI logo, not the Gulf and Western Paramount logo that the film should have. I think the Region 2 releases, the Blu-ray, DVD, HD, DVD, they may have the Gulf and Western The original Kong, of course, has such a distinct opening sequence. I remember when I was a kid first seeing this, I was very surprised how they opened it sort of in the middle of the adventure. So, as a kid, I had no idea who... I don't even think I got that this is non... And Renee Eberdejoinis, not sure, you know... Not sure what I wouldn't have known him from. See, as a kid, of course, watching this, you're looking for correlations between, well, the way I was a kid, when I was a kid, I approached remakes, I was looking for corresponding um, characters. So, of course, this is Jack, and he's got the same name, so he's the Jack character. Obviously. But I'm more mean on the ship. You know, you're looking for Charlie the Cook and so on. And I was convinced as a kid there were two actors named Charles Grodin. Because this Charles Grodin looked nothing like the Charles Grodin I knew from Seems Like Old Times and whatever else I knew him from at the time. Uh, My mom and I were big, big Charles Grodin fans. 
I remember I had a globe and I looked up where Surabaya was. Because on my globe, eventually, uh, the educational purpose was replaced with me marking it with locations of um, mostly monster movie stuff. I mean, I probably was like five or six, but whatever. Of course, the, the actual location of the island. Oh, here we go. So I assume here's the big ones, one of those lines people don't like in this. I mean, it's the 70s. What do you really expect? But I did want to point out that that was about three minutes of setup. Sort of a pre-first act, first act. And then, you know, this entire opening title sequence is real slow. I remember um, as a kid expecting the opening titles to be far more bombastic for a, a King Kong remake because I was first seeing this in about 1983, 1984 uh, when any subtlety in blockbusters was starting to just be gone. One of the more embarrassing stories which I may have shared somewhere else was when this finally got released uh, widescreen, which is the DVD I'm watching now, it uh, I was in college and I was extremely ecstatic about it. Hopefully I was drinking or something to make an excuse for it too, but this was about the most thrilling news at the time. A, a widescreen King Kong 76, because as it never came out on Laserdisc, for example, in Japan widescreen, which I think King Kong Lives did. And, you know, when I was 16, 17, 18, getting into, well, that period was when I was getting into far more serious films, but my nostalgia factor for the crappy monster movies of my youth was very high. I read this script of this when I was a kid. Um, the library had a copy of it. Really gorgeous Frazetta cover art. Oh, here we go. Okay, the raw herring, beer chaser, scoop of ice cream. When I was in college, I remember that I think I was 
forcing my roommate to watch King Kong 76, which he probably had no interest in, but the widescreen. And um, is that a poster of New York in the background with the Empire State Building? Wow, it's like an Easter egg. Anyway, so the uh, at that moment in the movie when he says the ice cream and beer chaser, well, I was a sophomore in college. You can you can guess I had a very nasty dessert. I probably must have recognized no. John Randolph, I don't know if I would have noticed him in uh, Roseanne or Christmas Vacation. I think by Christmas Vacation, I recognize that he was the John Randolph from King Kong, but there's Ed Lauder, who was probably my first favorite character actor. Um, at least the first one who I, I would see terrible movies for Ed Lauder performances. And he was always the same guy. So he was in uh, Fitzgerald Family Christmas. Had a really nice uh, performance in that one. So when I had that globe, I was like examining it, trying to find that exact location, which of course you can barely make anything out to mark it as the location of uh, King Kong 76 on my map, on my globe. I love some, uh, Lorenzo Simple Jr.'s dialogue in this section, his exposition. It's so perfect how, since Charles Grodin's playing a ham, it, of course the guy's going to talk like this. He's so... Um, insincere that all this all this dialogue just is fantastic from Groden because yeah and then there's that weird sensitivity moment that Groden has the embarrassed thing and it's just a really good performance from him He's just dressed like a complete buffoon. One of the weirdest things I've noticed lately about watching, and I really noticed this on Star Trek, the original series, because we watched all those this summer, is when you see technology that was supposed to be cutting edge, 
And I'm I, I'm going to start with say this. This is seventy six. So techie movies, right? Movies that had tech in them. You know, uh, Love Story probably did not have a supercomputer or I don't know special projection satellite pictures. So. Watching it now when we see how technology has gone differently is disconcerting because the the progress we've made seems so natural, but of course it really wasn't. Love Bridges delivering this too. I don't like that edit though. Did you see that? That edit was way too fast. That was a good edit. Same. Very weird one when they went to that close-up. Because otherwise all these shots are really beautifully cut together. Was it Ralphie Winters? There's um, a glip, for better of word, in the print. You can see with some of those cuts, but that that one is still too jarring. The close-up to or the medium shot to close up. Whereas the rest of this is just going great. When I was a kid, all I could think was how mean Charles Grodin was to him. I like the going to buy charts, because now you're just kind of like... Do people actually go by charts? I assume they do. I mean, I know that, what is it, iPads have taken off and the airlines, but not probably not on merchant shipping. Well, maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen Captain Phillips. And now we're going to get started on the part of the the movie where I didn't understand much of the humor when I was a kid. 
John Barry's score for this is amazing. I can't remember if I ever got it on LP, but like as a kid, I desperately wanted this soundtrack on LP. I've read the making of book, but I can't remember them having a lot of problems with the uh, ocean shooting that you often hear about. I mean, they probably shot this, what, in Hawaii. Uh, the ship was docked, so it was fine. But uh, that John Barry music just... See, I think part of the problem with King Kong 76 and the bad reputation it has has to do with um, looking at it too much of a remake and not I mean it wasn't remade for any sort of artistic purposes it was remade for utterly commercial purposes which are the best reason to make remake anything if you're not the same director and uh Perko's a pervert. Anyway, but of course, uh, Carnahan's okay. He can keep himself in check because he's Ed Lauder. Okay, so what I was saying about uh, the two Kongs, a remake, unless it's, you know, John Ford trying to fix something or et cetera, et cetera, uh, William Wyler, it, it should be commercial. It shouldn't be a labor of love. Yes, you can have great remakes that are labors of love, like um, The Thing, but there's a split. Um, trying to exploit a material for a new audience has more easy potential than actually doing a sincere remake. How about that? So, see, some of the reason the camp doesn't ever come off as campy to me is because, uh, the way. Uh, the actors handle it, especially Jeff Bridges. And um, the pace of the scenes, the, they're not waiting long enough for reactions for the camp really to be outrageous. Certainly not like in a disaster movie. But of course, then we get to Jessica Lang waking up and we'll get into a lot of things that I had no idea what they meant as a child. This is not a good moment. 
it's 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 not necessarily even Jessica Lange's performance of it because it's sort of impossible. I mean, just to set this scene up with um that she's like a, a model who who has it who ends up on a boat via tragedy. It's just it, it's too much. It's too – that's what throws in some of your camp value. That would have been the distress call we heard at the, the beginning of the movie, I believe. See, she can't do this. She comes off as a little stoned here. I don't know how many Jessica Lange movies I would have seen as a kid just because by the time by this I mean Frances was 83 she was a serious actress by 84 See, that's another example, that sequence where that shot, I mean, Gullerman's not, no, see, yeah, sorry, I'm getting distracted by the, uh, The idea that camp has to have an intentional factor by enough significant participants. You know, like, if the set dresser wanted to make it campy and the production designer didn't, and here's, of course... I mean, look how, I mean, because John Randolph's, you know, a solid character actor. and Jeff Bridges and Charles Grodin are trying really hard in this scene, but cutting it would be, you know, perfect. I had no idea what that was about as a kid. And then I, once I found out, I, I realized that the scene didn't really work. And now we've got a really nice, 
Excuse me. Now we got a really nice montage sequence because, you know, she just happened to find her way on the ship of these, the nicest crew, which of course happens in the first one, but... That seemed a little bit more sellable in the uh, 30s. Notice in that scene, she's sewing and he's reading, you know. They're very, even though she's actually a fashion model right now. Um, they're very domestic. The sewing is far more domestic. And then, this actually... Besides being really exploitative of Jessica Lang, um, in the extended scenes, two guys, two crew members try to get a peek at her, which is the reason that that shot's in there. It's not just, you know, Jessica Lang taking a shower. And I actually like this shot, that close-up. Um... Just the way it transitions into the introduction of the cloud bank. It's... If we tried to make King Kong again, and I'm going to ignore the Peter Jackson, even if it were a totally commercial effort, love this shot. Look at that cloud cover. Which is, of course, gone now because it's a different location. But Wow. That was really badly cut together. Um, just, I mean, the footage. Of course, here we go. More technology that, of course... I'm like, how does that work? It sees it in profile. Yeah, east to west. I've noticed I actually really like movies with lots of people in shots. Um, I, I like TV shows with it, too. Um, but I'm thinking of Aliens and The Thing. You know, you have movies with a lot of people in the shot and it being a long shot and a lot of acting going on in that shot. Charles Grodin doesn't seem like a very nostalgic guy, but if he were, I, I wonder if he'd get that uh, that picture that Jeff Bridges was taking. And now we're to um, rather exploitative uh, Jessica Lange stuff. It's funny, she ends up scantily clad for half the movie, but at least it makes sense. Is he wearing an ascot? I love it. John Cleese said that they put uh, Basil Fawlty in an ascot just because it was so silly and uh, such an affectation. Here's actually the first scene where you see she's she's not stupid. 
that moment right there. That was a great shot of her. Um, and now we cut back to this one, which is not that great of a shot. Um, see, again, here we go. Very campy sequence, yet the way Gullerman's presenting it and the way um, Jeff Bridges is reacting to um, Jessica Tandy's ramblings, uh, Jessica Lang's ramblings, sorry. It doesn't come off as camp because she's the only one, she she and the script are up against the director, the cinematographer, and uh, the co-star. And it just doesn't, doesn't come off to me as camp. It doesn't. It, it, if you're judging Kong on being good camp, of course it's going to be uh, unaffect, or it, of course it's going to get a fail. I'm watching this and I'm I'm picturing it how it must have looked in four by three and some of the shots. just because they're surrounded by so much emptiness. You can see... Oh, no, that one. Never mind. It was one shot of Charles Grodin that would have looked okay, pan and scan, but... Okay, so here we go. I would have been very excited to see this as a kid. A real Skull Island instead of a... Instead of a, a back lot. Of course, I probably still thought they went to on location. I thought they were probably in Indonesia filming this. Not sure that was worth cheering about. I mean, really, all they did was take a boat. Well, no, they did discover an island behind a fog bank. That's pretty cool. This film probably started my fascination with wanting to go to the tropics, which I've never been to. See, yeah, okay. That's the shot where John Gullerman wants to be uh, William Friedkin for a second. Right, because he's a uh, doctor of paleontology who's decided to uh, take photos of models. I mean, this is a goofy sequence, but 
See, that that delivery just seems like Groden's too contemptuous of the idea of doing it as camp to, to let it go that way. Okay, so this was always one of my favorite sequences. In fact, when I first saw this widescreen, I found that it didn't have the same... Um, nostalgic effect as the pan and scan one did, just because the picture was smaller. But you're, uh, you know, as a kid, I would have been watching this, going, "Oh, is Kong gonna grab her? What's gonna go on?" And then you get to the this famous shooting location, and it's just so magnificently done that. I think it's in six nights or seven, six days, seven nights, and it's nowhere near as effective in that in that film. How did she see the waterfall behind the curve? So. Why is he so mad? See, as a kid, you know, the romance between um, Bruce Cabot and Faye Ray is a real movie romance, right? The, The romance between Jack and Anne is a real romance. In this one, it's not. It's, you know, the... He's sort of preying on someone he thinks he's smarter than. A little. Loved the shot as a kid. And now imagine this. Sorry about that readjusting. Imagine this pan and scan. So you're not getting, or I'm sorry, pan and scan. You're not getting the mountains to the side of it. When I started watching movies uh, widescreen, both on Laserdisc and DVD, you, what, like this shot looked totally different. It was just the right side of the screen. You had nothing on the, the left. It, I don't have a good example, but it's entirely possible that you can like a pan and scan version of a movie and not like the widescreen version of the movie. Uh, the movies are different. Um, they're very different. And especially something like this where Gullerman's not directing for TV. You know, you get the late 80s De Palma and he's shooting it for pan and scan. No way Gullerman's shooting this for pan and scan. He's not even thinking about it. Ed Lauder just being... out of it really helps sell that scene. 
And here we go. I don't know if there's a way to do a a movie with uh, island natives kidnapping the the white person to sacrifice to their monkey god without portraying the island natives poorly. I hated those costumes. I hated the bag um, eight-man costume because in the thirty-three one, there's a much, there's a better eight-man costume. So, Gee, I wonder Nikon product placement. I I remember once seeing an ad for the watch he's wearing. There was a watch tie-in. One of the other issues is this is obviously those are fake rocks and the cutting back and forth from this ornate um, location shooting to to uh, them watching. It just doesn't flow nicely. And um, that whole congregation line is terrible. I remember wondering why... Are the actors playing the natives black and not like Polynesian or like something like that, right? Indonesian. Yeah. 
is Jeffrey just supposed to be standing silly right now? Is that an anthropology thing? Because he's a paleontologist, right? He or I can't remember. No, he's not a paleontologist. He's an anthropologist. No. Primatologist. Is that a word? When I was a kid, I never would have thought that these sequences should have been subtitled, but now there's no way that if this were in, I don't know, The Lone Ranger or something, there was some scene like this and it wasn't subtitled, I'd be shocked. It seems like a very little thing that we don't, um, we don't ignore, it's not really multiculturalism, it's more like movies have been forced to be less, um, objectifying of populations, uh, for melodramatic purposes. And even if it were a tribe of nomadic Frenchmen, we'd still get subtitles today just because it's... Well, I think... I expect subtitles today just because it's... I don't go into a movie of today willing to invest or suspend certain judgments, um, not just of drama, but of uh, thoroughness. And that sort of thing. I like this sequence, too. I hate this part. They really needed an established... They needed this shot uh, from the other angle in the dark first, not close-ups. This is interesting because we're... The way Semple approaches the plotting of King Kong is that he doesn't... He's got one thing to do. He's got to get the girl to the monkey, right? But he's setting the movie up in such a way to distract um, the viewer. It It's not the most functional use of time. It's sincere of course this is not you know Kong was the equivalent of it's not part of the you know the blockbuster movement in Hollywood that Jaws and Star Wars did 
it's in between Jaws and Star Wars. It was probably in production before Jaws was a big hit. So it's not structured in what would become blockbuster style. Not even 80s blockbuster style, which is entirely different than modern blockbuster style. I hated the lack of an establishing shot on this one, too. I mean, something about this shot, it's just not... It's not far back enough. It's like two long establishing shots Gellerman's kind of needed. Now, he's actually surprised that she wants a little piece of action. And this is where the relationship gets interesting. I can't remember if Jessica Lange and Jeff Bridges ever actually did a serious movie together. I should look that up. And now here we go. Here's the boat. Oh, and this zoom-in is awful. I always hated this zoom-in. And it looks worse on pan and scan. I mean, this was... Actually, probably some of it was superior and some of it was inferior. Just because the lameness of the shot zoomed in just looks like a lame pan and scan shot. Oh, so that isn't New York. That is a Petrox oil plant. Interesting. The way they talk about Petrox Tower, you almost think that's what King Kong is going to climb So maybe that is Petrox Tower in that picture. I don't know, but... I'm not aware of any oil companies that had famous tower uh, skyscrapers, but who knows. That's weird. Where did those come from? It's an interesting way of doing that shot. Kind of reminds me of Sam Raimi. This might have been the start of the second tape, or not. This Kong was originally released on two um, two VHS tapes um, on its first release. I never saw the actual double-sized box of it. That would have been interesting. I only ever saw the... Uh, I saw it in a clamshell. 
So now she's stoned. See, I feel like in the other one, we got much more of a possessive sense as viewers of the wall. Like they showed us the wall. We got to see the wall. We, we owned it. In this one, it's very removed. And... Yeah, I mean... It's like... De Laurentiis was trying to make exploitative PG movies. Uh, it's just very weird. Um, he was trying to introduce exploitation sort of sexism, really, uh, into <laughs> an objectification into like a PG movie, which we didn't get. You know, we didn't get that from uh, Spielberg or Lucas. We have that today, starting with uh, I don't know. Was it the Fast and the Furious? I don't really care. But it, 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 that's a Dino De Laurentiis legacy. Um, yeah, Bruckheimer. Bruckheimer played with it a little bit, but actually not as much as one would think, and not in PG movies. So here's where I would have been waiting for the shot. Here's where I would have been waiting for Kong at the gates. Just like every King Kong book had a picture of, you know. That shot of Kong at the gate. And I don't get it. Because as a kid, I must have been just... I mean, this even carried over to when I started seeing movies in uh, widescreen, that you'd just be waiting for a moment in widescreen to see it. I used to show my friends um, how something looked pan and scan and then how it looked widescreen. Um, I probably didn't stop doing that until I was like 20, 21. <laughs> Wait, did Ralph? I think Ralphie Winter shot the movie. I don't think he's the editor. This is an impressive set, too. I mean, one of the things about Kong is that it's.
it's something of an outsider making an American blockbuster. Um, there's a commercialism to it that is involved with that. Um, but there's also a, with, you know, a, a director, uh, far more for hire than Spielberg, who is trying to build a career. You have a director who's toward the middle end of a career and, he's just got all these amazing uh, tools to play with. You know, he's got a, a budget he's got, and you saw this from Gullerman on uh, towering Inferno, but in Kong, There's an enthusiasm for the project where he will not let himself be embarrassed by making it too campy. I mean, it's inherently campy. Because the 70s is when you stopped believing uh, your expectation of Hollywood you know, or 67 with Bonnie and Clyde or whatever. And, and that's what the films were made to be like. It was, it was made to, to break from Technicolor and the stages and the sets. And so what you have here is you have a remake of one of those movies by a non, it's not an American production. I mean, It's Paramount trying to create Jaws without Spielberg or something. I mean, it's that sort of equivalent. It's it it has more in common in some ways with uh, Superman than it does uh, an Amer- a regular American blockbuster, just because of the lack of. Uh, Oh, I'm going to say it. The lack of buy-in from the director on the project. Which isn't to to discredit um, Gullerman or Donner. It's to say that these were not guys who these movies were going to make or break. They weren't going to make them. The movies weren't going to make the director. They would have been fine without these movies. They fixed her hair up really nice. I loved this shot as a kid. I loved the process shots in this movie, uh, even the ones that don't go well. So we're only, we're an hour in, right? So I'm guessing the second tape probably starts after he grabs her. And I think when they split it overnight, that's when they, uh, because it aired two days on TV. Okay, so the arm, there's a disappointment. The arm looks better in the pan and scan version. Uh, especially in the process shots, the arm looks better in the pan and scan version. And I mean, you, you know, the process paramount's not going to go through and clean this up. You know, they're not going to do a special edition of it. So you're sort of, at least when you were watching it on a shitty VHS transfer, uh, that shot, uh, look at the miniature work. Uh, I think Leonard Malton gives it either a bomb or a star and a half. And he says, uh, the real star is Rick Baker in the Kong suit. Look at that. 
So, yeah, it's just... I feel like seeing this movie on TV uh, would... You wouldn't... The special effects would come off better due to the uh, deficiencies of the VHS format. And now you have a scene out of a Calvary movie and the exit of the chief, who I believe gets a mention later. But unlike uh, the original Kong, the Islanders never show up after this scene on, on film. Now we got the footprint coming up. In the pan and scan, you don't see... It, it looks different. Um, boom. Got a little comedy for us. This looks better in the... Uh, pan and scan version too. It just it doesn't it's it doesn't make sense as a footprint. I think I knew going into it there were no dinosaurs. Of course this is we're fifty seven minutes in. This is kinda when the first movie picks up, right? Because the first movie has two awesome things. It's got, you know, the monkey in the city and it's got the monkey on the island and the dinosaurs. And so we're seeing a, a reductionism of the idea. Um, dinosaurs being alive doesn't make sense anymore, but Kong does somehow. That's the 70s logic. And, of course, it would have been impossibly expensive. The here, yeah, and also fifty-eight minutes in is when Ed Lauder actually gets something to do. Fred doesn't care what's going on because Fred's just a jerk. Now you got a nice scene here, just because the John Randolph. Charles Grodin stuff's good. The relationship's nice. 
the end of the movie's lacking because Randolph disappears. And here we go. Here, this is another camp concept not handled campily. See, they, they don't get back. They, there's no forgiving in that scene. I wouldn't have gotten what he was talking about as a kid. So this was always my favorite new sequence, and not just because we now have Jessica Lang in her scanty scanties for the rest of the movie. Oh, actually, I think it gets scantier later, but you just have these fantastic shots I mean, you see this from a lot of workmen directors who get stuck on a, a big-budget movie later that Martin Campbell, of course, not, not being one of them. Uh, you, you just see the way they approach the special effects being incredibly... Um, cautious and confident at the same time. Like they're not trying to be too ambitious. Uh, Robert Wise on Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, none of the other Star Trek movies ever had such, you know, visually stunning sequences as that one. And it's just because his approach to it does not involve, um, the hand would have moved. See, you see the hand moving, but it doesn't move there. Love the detail of the birds. Um, they would have made a big deal about that in the 33. Hell, they probably made a big deal out of it in the 2005. But in this one, it's just a background detail. Um, Paul W.S. Anderson's done that once that I know of to pretty good success in a much bigger scale, but... It just works out. How big would that hair that's sticking out of this thing be? Like, you'd see it. That's Wouldn't you? No, I guess not. How much would King Kong have to eat? It'd be incredible. They actually deal with that in the second one. But Okay, so now we get this shot, which... I think I saw a clip of this shot widescreen before the movie, like on some clip video or TV show or something. But so I had seen that one second, 
But then, okay, so here's where you start getting campy, but when I realized that the diff this, I hated this every time, hate that shot, doesn't look good in the pan and scan. I mean, this looks fine, but the movement was too much. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I was probably 10, before I realized that the big difference between this movie and the original is that she's sympathetic to Kong. She's not terrified. And in the first one, one of the big points is she is terrified. And it's one of those things they took from, see, it doesn't quite work, but gosh darn it, government's trying to make it work. Um, in the new one, they borrow this whole idea that she's somehow sympathetic to Kong when it's all from this one. And this is when I start liking Jessica Lang a lot in this movie. I don't know what the best way to transition between this is, but that was a pretty fun way to do it. I don't know if she does any more of these like monologue things, but it'd be funny to see how many she does in the movie. How many mono Jessica Lang's monologues from King Kong 76. Maybe I'll cut that together for YouTube just as a gag. See, she's not, she's doing this silly monologue by herself not with all those other actors, and it's working better. You see what the music just did there? It got the music got close to campy, and then it went into this. And boom. I love how long her footsteps are audible. Of course, this is a great shot. See, I mean, the other thing is, I'm watching this in 84, 85, and I'm trying to explain it to my friends who aren't watching movies from the 1970s um, for their awesome special effects, you know. Uh, people make fun of... You know, Next Generation fans made fun of uh, the original series because of the special effects. So it was very imposing to try to... You had to upsell. Or not upsell, but you had to, you had to work hard to get people to appreciate um, the quality of special effects in the context of the film it's in. And... I don't know if CG made me realize that or if I had started to realize it before that, but it got to be a point where I just couldn't 
acknowledge that saying, um, for example, the 1933 King Kong has bad special effects because they're stop motion, I could no longer acknowledge that as a, as a reasonable uh, opinion, which is a problem because it makes me a jerk. That is John Lone. He's in the credits as Charlie the Cook, or I thought he was playing Charlie the Cook, who had a part in the first one because the first one had Andero forming relationships. This one doesn't. So, Look, he lied to the dumb guys to make them work harder. Love this sequence. Ugh. This was the picture on the back of the VHS box. There's a, a publicity still of Jessica Lang in the waterfall or just after. It's also, I think, when she gets more scanty uh, as the movie just has her getting more and more scantily clad till the end not a fan of this one uh, the, that composite shot in the uh, widescreen version <laughs> see one of the things about this is I don't know if I'm actually supposed to take that as the ape being a pervert, but I don't. I take it as it being a dumb, sweet animal. A vaguely intelligent animal. And, you know, a character to to himself. And the first movie doesn't have that. Oh, you know what? I love that shot. Just for a second, even with the, the composite problems. That is some amazing makeup. And it's that sort of thing that sells you on practical effects. The attention to detail on something like how an ape is going to look blowing, that's what's going to sell you on the practical effect. Like, that's the shot you actually have to sell. Because... In the back of the viewer's mind, they know they're watching a guy in an ape suit pretend to carry around a Barbie doll, or carrying around a Barbie doll pretending it's Jessica Lange. It's... See, he's just sweet. There's nothing... The attempt to add uh, a sexual component is just silly.
product placement time. I think the captain's gone at this point. I'm upset about that. The weird thing is that they did correspond certain characters between the uh, original and this one, but they didn't correspond there. And, and they casted them really well, like the captain. The captain's, uh, you know, Englehorn, the first one, was very memorable. John Randolph's very memorable. But Englehorn sticks around enough. He's in it enough. You get enough of the captain in that one. And this one you don't get enough. But they gave, they casted someone who wants you to have that full um, time. Now, this sequence is clearly a set. This, of course, is one of the best sequences effects-wise and in terms of action drama in the first one. And in this one, it just doesn't come off. Um, the day for night doesn't matter. The lighting doesn't match. This isn't a night sequence. The backdrops are too artificial. It doesn't make sense in this island world. what Again, what Gullerman needed was an establishing shot. That's what he needed. He needed an establishing shot to show there are trees that size elsewhere in this um, now almost tundra part of this island. And he doesn't have them. Even here, those trees aren't tall enough. So here we go. This is, of course, when Jack and Denim get split in the first one, making Carnahan the closest thing to a Denim. Who There is no Denim. Um, Fred Wilson's not Denim. It's... Yeah. Why are falling shots so hard? Even in movies that you just love. Robocop, for example, falling shots are always a problem. Does Carnahan just go? Yeah, Carnahan just goes. Doesn't even get to go last. Is that Bo? Yeah, okay. Likeable black guy makes it. Played by Julius Harris, who was in something else, but I don't know what. This sequence is really memorable in the first one. with uh, And it was memorable because of the stop motion. I feel like that's something that you can't hold against the 76 King Kong. Is that some of the sequences in the first one were just so amazing because of the effects. These are really good effects, but they're not... <sighs> 
they're not the point. The special effects aren't the point. The movie hasn't been generated out of this technology being now existent. Whereas Superman, it is. It's very different uh, than that's the difference between Superman and Kong, and which puts Superman more in line with Star Wars than Jaws and, and that sort of thing. Um, just how these uh, movies came together and at this time in history, in film history, is important because it, it's led to some really great films and some really shitty ones, but... Does he even acknowledge him? I don't even think Bo acknowledges him. Or is it Bone? I, I don't know. Okay, so here we go. We've got our Petrox. You'd think they could afford... It's almost like they designed a cheap logo for Petrox so they wouldn't have to spend a lot of money on uh, painting planes. They could just put some stickers on it. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's what oil companies are really like. You'll see stuff with oil companies and it's just like trying to imagine that world of so much limitless expenditure. Who knows? I I feel like uh, to some degree that that's in... um, What is that one called? Syriana a little bit too. The the actual oil company, what's standard to that is fantastical to us. When does when does Fred get concerned? We kind of miss that shot. So instead of Jack running into dinosaurs and so on and so forth, you've instead got Jack exploring an island. Now, of course, you'd think we'd see some villagers, right? Nope, no villagers. That, that tree across the uh, ravine is from the same tree that made the, the bolt on the gate, obviously. How'd they get it through there? Even though this is him actually doing work in an ascot, um, signaling a change in the character, he he is um, 
separate from the captain now, no longer taking his counsel. I like that moment. So when I was a kid, our video store didn't have King Kong. I don't think a th- single video store we knew about, like in our town or the nearby ones, had King Kong. But eventually it was going to air on TV. But we were going to be out of town visiting um, my mom's family in Iowa. So we recorded it. So, you know, it was a big deal because this was 83, 84-ish. And, okay, so this is an awesome set. Now, why didn't they have, for the bridge sequence, why, it's been a day, why couldn't they have handled the, the lighting as well as they handled this sequence? Right here. Okay, so, I didn't think we'd get to watch Kong when we were at my grandparents'. And so my dad programmed it on the VCR, like I said, Early 80s, big deal to trust the VCR to record, right? Like the clock was going to run out of battery. So we're in Iowa um, hanging out with um, one of my uncles and maybe multiple uncles, but because I, I kind of remember all my cousins being there. And of course, you know, maybe they've seen King Kong before because it's been on TV and. You know, I remember it was a very big deal to me and everybody else was like, you haven't seen this before? Um, But it was this sequence that we tuned in for one of the nights. That was, I think, the recording issue was we we had to record it two nights. They split it on two nights, so we had to record two nights of King Kong. And it somehow got messed up. And then we went and my dad found Kong at some video store in... I don't know, Schomburg or something. Um, probably Lincolnwood. No, further than Lincolnwood. We drove out, Morton Grove maybe, drove out, rented it. I got to see King Kong finally. I think he would have watched it with me that first time, but that was about it. He, My dad has no tolerance for King Kong 76. It doesn't... It's never been an interest. It's never been one of those things that uh, he has any nostalgia value for. Giant Snake. No establishing shot of this. I mean, I get it, right? Like, they just... But, I mean, they have this. They have this awesome shot. Pterodactyl and snake. Yeah. Pterodactyl wins. This is just not... It's a wrestling scene. We really want to watch King Kong wrestle this thing. Now, he gets... She gets his coat because she's kind of naked. Um, 
Kong's mad because his friend's gone. Not sure that's what the inside of a snake looks like. But maybe. How many of those are there? They're kind of big. Like, why did it attack Kong this weekend? You know? It's just a just this Saturday, the snake decides to attack Kong. He's finally been waiting. Okay. Love this set shot. She didn't even look back for him. She don't care. I don't know if it's just the DVD plan while I've, I'm recording, but that sound did not match. The splash did not match for me. Your mileage may vary. Look, he's back. Five minutes or less. There are people who shitmouth this movie, like Spielberg, and then he'll he'll rip stuff off from it. I can't remember if it was uh, Jurassic Park or Lost World, but he pulled something from this too. It is bone. Not bow. I don't know that you would do that scene anymore. I don't know that you'd have the scene of the black guy, look, the black working class guy giving the white guy a uh, stupid white man look anymore. I think people would make too big of a deal out of it now. If you weren't doing it in comedy. I mean, there's that Will Ferrell movie that's just going to be that, but... I remember that being a big deal to me, the way he covered up the hole with the uh, the single, with the the leaf contraption. Is that the captain? You'd think they'd get somebody besides an old guy to help open the door. Is that him? The diminishing screen presence of John Randolph and uh, 
Jessica Lange's monologues, the two two most distincting factors of this film in some ways, at least for creating the, um, at least in terms of its, particular uh, elements that should be done better. Some So I do need to tell everyone who's made it this far, which is almost 90 minutes, um, back when Matt and I recorded podcast uh, commentaries for Alan Smithy podcast, I would watch the movie before we uh, we did the, the commentary, so I'd have some familiarity with what I might say. I didn't do that for favorites. Favorites is just uh, the equivalent of me sitting and talking while you're trying to watch a movie, which would never happen. If I actually were to do this kind of thing, I would stop the movie and talk about it, like Woody Allen did with Shane when the New York Times did a series of directors. They were shocked that Woody Allen wouldn't talk over the movie and said he would pause it on a projector uh, to, to talk about what he wanted to talk about. Why the hell they're not running back further is uh, always been a question to me. They're going to chloroform him. I have a joke right now, but I'm pretty sure it would be libelous, but it does involve Bill Cosby. So it's a bad joke. I'm sorry. So in the original, this sequence is much different. You know, this is going to be the payoff scene. He's going to go crazy. He's going to wreck havoc. He's going to destroy the village. He's going to get the villagers that have disappeared. Where have they gone? Aren't they in that shot? And boom, down he goes right away. Because King Kong is 76 is not a monster movie. King Kong 76 is a disaster movie with a mobile disaster. Wait. No, actually it's not. Not at all. I bet... Okay, so the villagers do come back for this shot. Where did they come from? Sorry, I forgot. They do have this moment. But I don't think... Does the chief show up? This is another still... um, that looks totally different in black and white than it does in, in color um, at like 3 by 2 ratio. So when I would see pictures from the King Kong, 76 Kong um, in, in books as a kid, this scene never played the way I thought it, it would. It also is a fail of a shot because there's no way for Kong to be laying in there like that and to bring up the hand at that angle. But... So now they're all sad because their god is dead. And now we've got a new boat and the captain is gone. And I had to explain this to one of my friends that they were on a different boat. So I think when we watch this, um, in Iowa, because we I didn't want to watch all of it, but I think we were flipping around trying to find stuff to watch. We came back during one of these um, 
in the oil tanker um, sequences. So the movie's now got 45 minutes left to go. And it's going to completely change tone in a way that the... Oh, look, it's campy. They're feeding him bananas. Ha, ha, ha. It, they're going to run away. And, I mean, it's it's dumb. There's no way that animal would be able to survive on a fruit diet. And look, she's not dressed uh, risque anymore. She's serious. Even though she's just become a movie star or whatever. Jeff Bridges' contempt for this movie helps it so much. Because Gellerman directs him like he's not aware that Bridges is being a jerk. Okay, so they're going to do a ballet, right? And I guess, you know, and Peter Jackson does a little ballet sequence. They've, they've not kissed, as far as I know. Have they? I don't think they did. When he rescues her, they don't kiss. Love this uh, shot here of the three of them. That one really came through. This, this one came through in the transfer so much better. This is such a fantastic shot. See, this should be campy and it's not. See, that's the kind of delivery that Bridges had to... If he delivered certain lines in the post-boat sequence with that um, thoughtfulness, it would have strengthened that part, those parts of the movie. I don't think I owned this before King Kong Lives came out. So, like, I wasn't that familiar with it. I'd seen it, like, once. 
And so the sort of world of King Kong lives, uh, when I, I, I like wondered why we didn't see more of him as Kong's keeper. Do they finally kiss here? Yes, they do, and then he interrupts, and Kong will always come between them. Love this sequence. See, I mean, so what? It's a cheap sequence, beautifully handled. John Barry's music does the right callbacks. I mean... Awkward edit there. Possibly to get that close up. Well, he doesn't care about the monkey anymore? Wow. Because he's not worried that she's in danger. Hey, it's kind of funny. I mean, you've gotten basically 97 minutes into this movie and you're finding out that you don't actually know your protagonists really well because they were on a on a mission as the movie started in one way or another. So we haven't actually gotten to see them. I remember wondering what that was as a kid. I'm like, why is it brown water? It's got to be oil, right? I love the boat sequence in the movie. I mean... See, she can sell these monologues when she doesn't have to do them opposite. She can sell the silliness. It's not a big deal. All right, now Jack's willing to make this species extinct. She has very sensible shoes on.
See, in some ways, I mean, part of the issue with um, the camp is that I like that shot, even though it doesn't work that well. I like it a lot. But the whole idea of becoming a star, it's too flimsy, and everybody knows it. it. It doesn't belong here. And nobody, and, and so people don't give it the seriousness that the movie needs it to have for it to be high camp. It would need to have been the 1976 equivalent of Paris Hilton for this, for this to work as the camp that it needs to work at. But it couldn't be a Paris Hilton-like character. It would have to be Paris Hilton playing this character. So, I don't know. Maybe Jessica Lange was a huge supermodel in 76. And she, I don't think she was. Like, I think she was a model, but I don't think she was like a, you know, the... And the last huge supermodel, right? Like that it would be a commentary with them appearing in a movie. So, and look at that. It's all good. Great sequence. Love this shot. Remember that, that, uh, that matte painting shot there is just gorgeous. See, I mean, I think that's, You get sympathy for Kong, you get concern for her, respect for her. And he becomes the damsel in distress now. And it has an emotional weight on her. I mean, it's... It's good stuff. The uh, the first one, the original, never approached that issue, and this isn't in some geeky movie trying to look at the psychological aspects of uh, Stockholm syndrome and giant apes. It's you know a would be blockbuster by an Italian guy in America. This bummed me out unbelievably. I wanted daytime New York when I was a kid. I don't even know if the original has daytime New York. I don't even know if I wanted Kong running around in the middle of the day. I think I did because the poster has him on the top of the World Trade Center during the day. So I wanted that shot somehow in the movie. No ascot. He doesn't go out with an ascot on. I think the screenplay, I don't know if I believe that the screenplay they released uh, in lieu of a novelization was the actual screenplay, because 
Semple had a lot of like character, you know, back play in the in the scene description, backstory in the scene description, like what Jack was just doing. Um, there we go. Is it worth being a star? And now she's stoned again. We're, we're back to the 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 Dwan he rescued. Heaven, I mean, so like the the idea is they've been seeing each other every day. They've been intimate, perhaps, and so that's like they skip that part of the story. They skip all the setup. They skip all the setup of this. It's now another reset with half an hour to go. Who rioted the Lucky King Kong contest winners who rioted the first night? No, wait. Yeah, I think they rioted here and they rioted where um, they shoot the dead Kong. Oh, sorry. If you haven't seen it, I just gave away the ending. You shouldn't be listening to this if you haven't seen it. Um, I remember thinking this was just so goofy. And we've gotten to the point now where we don't care about Fred Wilson. Um, it, he doesn't really matter anymore. We're not. We didn't have to like him anymore. He didn't have to be sympathetic after Carnahan disappeared, or when you know he wouldn't you know give up on being a capitalist pig long enough to listen to the captain even though he was working alongside the blue collar workers you know the script's done with him not as done with him as uh it is with John Randolph but it it it, it got done it doesn't really need him in it anymore this very easily could have been another character presenting it. What executive actually wants to dress up and do this? And I mean, again, here you have a camp story element the film isn't handling in the camp fashion it really needs to for it to, to go for that aspect. The sequence is also funny because, you know, Fred Wilson gets lost. Charles Gordon's just around occasionally. Whereas the focus is all on Rick Baker, Jessica Lange, um, the robot that was used for one shot. I think there's some famous people cameoing in the uh, stands there. John Agar's in here somewhere. Okay, so... He's going to think what? Why didn't... My issue with that delivery was is Jeff Bridges clearly didn't have anything else to say they cut away from. (laughs) 
the escape proof cage. Yep. Now we get to the nice process shots. Oh, and there you go. Your your shot of the robot actually doing something. Dino De Laurentiis sold this as them building a life-size Kong. And really what they would do is they would ship the hand all over the place to use it while they were putting the rest of it together. And they only ever got it together for that one shot. There are pictures of it in construction. In, uh, I think you can find them online now. But it's like a bunch of cement. So it's just like... And, and someone pointed out that De Laurentiis didn't... Nobody was supposed to believe that this is a robot. Except they, they are supposed to see the shots of the robot being built and wonder how it could be. Wouldn't those people are running toward Kong? So, I mean, now everybody's just running... Who knows where. They actually integrate these shots pretty well. Like, there's no reason to use them. You don't have... You could just as easily have done a shot like that with process. Like here, right? So, you didn't have to use them. They just threw them in for the the psychological... Well, we told you there was a robot in here. Look, there it is. Factor. Um... Because, you know, salesmanship ego is weird. And now, of course, here's the end of Fred Wilson, who I was wondering if he would deliver the uh, Beauty Killed the Beast uh, line in uh, at the end of the movie. And the answer is no, he will not. I'm pretty sure in the TV cut you get a shot of his hat being flat, suggesting that Wilson rolled out of the way in time. Not so in this version. This is like leaving a concert, but only worse. Waka waka. Um, There goes your most effects-heavy sequence with Kong and quote-unquote people. Just because his havoc throughout the rest of the movie is very well contained. Wait, is there a train sequence? Oh, the train sequence. I should shut up. Why was I saying that was the most heavy? Uh, effects heavy. So I knew there was a King Kong ride, but I didn't know why it was at Universal Pictures since this was a Paramount picture. And people would tell me that you got to see the movie when you were there. And of course you didn't. You got to see this clip, I believe. But I I thought, you know, it's like I'm never going to get to see this movie and all these people that have been to Universal Studios have seen the movie because they got to go and I didn't. So, here we have this big shot, right? Boom. We only actually have this and that other sequence with the miniatures. So, right? 
there's a huge giant ape rampaging money shot. And I mean, there are more giant ape rampaging money shots in uh, King Kong versus Godzilla than there are in King Kong 1976. And it's because King Kong versus Godzilla is a giant monster movie. Made by people who make giant monster movies. This is an attempt at a blockbuster of what proportion? How much money were movies making before Jaws? How much did Delia Rentis really think they were going to do? So instead of getting something crazy heavy on the effects, you get something that's crazy heavy on using the character in this way as... a likable disaster in motion. And what's interesting, of course, about Jack and Dwan on the run in this part is, uh, this could be some guy she met that night at this point. They don't matter anymore. Their relationship has, uh, for these sequences, has no personality. They're relying on her dress to keep the viewer engaged. Okay, so now we've got this shot. Just amazing miniature work. Except Gullerman's not thinking about it from that perspective, so he just switches over so often to shooting Kong as a character in this... uh, in his reality of being that tall and on these sets. So it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it lacks payoff in a good way, in, in a way that gives the, the film personality that it otherwise wouldn't have. Look, she just read his book. She's actually smarter than we thought. Deja vu. Saw this shot when I was in Iowa, too. I remember that. I think this was when we stopped watching it. Or maybe... No, because that couldn't have been in the first part, and this in the second part. So now you have the bar scene, which is one of my, I think, favorite sequences. We'll find out. See... With the exception of, the, at least they don't zoom over to it, but that's a still not a good shot. I mean, it's a still picture made into a shot, not an actual shot. The way that they imply Kong in the water is very good in that edit. They could have used that a lot in some of the other parts of the movie. We don't want to get shot as looters. We'll have product placement. So this is funny. You know, here you've got a a primatologist who thinks that furs look good. (laughs) 
That line never worked for me. The in your excitement, your blood like dope. And he's had similar ones. So But again, see their romance really doesn't matter. That sequence succeeds because of her performance. It doesn't really matter whether or not they get together, whether or not they're able to stay together. Um, oh, and here we go. There's supposedly a power uh, power plant sequence uh, right here that was cut that I think I have as a copy on something, but I've never watched. I cut together a King Kong extended version back in um, just after college when I got it from Region 2, Studio Canal. Um, and I don't think I ever watched that version that I cut together. I think I just I, I just noticed it when I was going through my discs for this one, but I've never actually watched it. Because I was hoping Paramount would actually officially release it. I never liked how this... Oh, there's the fade... Um, I like how this uh, very important character sequence is left entirely undone. There is that John Agar? I think that's John Agar. Is that John Agar? Doesn't look like John Agar. Does she really want furs or does she really want Jack? What will she decide? You would never believe they had a deal in 1976. It's silly. Maybe in 33 you could have gotten away with something like that, but not in 76. And now, what have we done? We have... Managed to find the one restaurant where she is. Now, that's a goofy-ass shot, but I think it's a lot more successful in this because of the photography than it should be. That didn't really work. That shot of him in the window didn't work in this one. 
Not when he's, like, crawling on the ground. Doesn't make any sense. I've always wondered what the building to the left is. Now you've got the, the theme on church bells. Love this part. See? We don't get the shot. We don't get the... I think it's because they don't want to have to show him holding a doll too much. So, the King Kong on the cover of... or on the movie poster, seems more like the size of King Kong and King Kong vs. Godzilla, which, of course, was a King Kong movie that you would see um, more often than this one, or at least I did because of VHS and things like that. Sven Gulli or whatever. That's what it was. Is King Kong 76 was never on Sven Gulli, as far as I know. Um, so... The size of Kong on the poster seemed more in line with uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, which it, it is not in the movie, so the expectations are different. I feel like I saw this widescreen on a clip show, too. Sorry. You just gotta love the lights on the uh, building. Now here you go. If you're over there, you but you can see them in the background there. Not the most scalable building you'd think, but there he goes. There's no shot, of course, of her getting on his back. Um, building's open all night. Of course it is. Elevators are turned on all night, too. To the observation deck. There we go. We're not in 1933 anymore. trying to remember if at this point I actually thought they were going to show up with the steel nets to capture him, like something was going to go wrong and he, he dies. Because, like I said, I, I only saw it, I think, once before I saw King Kong Lives. And then, I love this shot, even though the mat's not that good. Um... So it didn't make sense to me that, you know, King Kong could fall off the World Trade Center and not die, that they could bring him back in a sequel. So I, I kept wondering how that went. If there was something at the end of this movie that implied there could be a sequel. Because that's one of the things about King Kong. There can't be a sequel with King Kong and it. You know, you have to do something else. I don't know. 
See how fast they made that cut? They did not want you paying too much attention to those special effects. See, that's the thing is, Kong's not about glorifying its special effects. It's about telling its story. Makes it very different. Now, this is somewhat inexplicable why he really wants to see her naked. Right? Is this the scene where he does that? Is he going to eat her? What's he going to do? This probably reminded me of Die Hard as a kid. See, the army wasn't going to burn him. They chose to, those men did it. What were the orders? You know, that's not important to the story. It's really weird. What are those men doing there? They are terrorizing Kong to get this big effect shot. Which doesn't work. Either... Any of the shots, none of the shots work. Not a one. That's probably some of the riot footage. Because you'll notice you never see any massive people. These guys are just dicks, basically. Like, what the hell are they doing? Why are they, like, trying to burn him across two buildings? There's some line about now how that now Kong's killed somebody, they'll never let him live. See? It's at it's um it's at night, obviously. Helps with budget, but it there's no visual payoff to this sequence. They have no interest in actually being ambitious with the film and its special effects. And that's a that's not a really clear distinction that the effect created by this being such a, a perfunctory, huge budget type thing, uh, giant ape blockbuster attempt. That effect is a noticeable, significant one, but maybe not one that people are really all that aware of. And I mean, on those terms, it fails, of course. But 
that's judging it by the same terms. It, it's not telling it to be a remake of King Kong. It's telling it to be a remake of the artistic sensibilities and business sensibilities behind how the original King Kong was made, which is impossible to do. It's in King Kong Lives where Linda Hamilton says that they've, he's killed now, so he's he's done for. Not this one. I mean, when you think about this, Jeff Bridges gets nothing to do in the end of this movie. Nothing. That's, that's all he gets to do. That is not very action hero stuff. Hate these mad shots with the helicopters. They do not do them well. And he rolls off. And here I was waiting for that shot like in the original. The profile shot of the building. Kong falling. Instead, he rolls off. And when somebody rolls off of a ledge or a building in a movie, you always have to wonder why they had to roll off. Because he doesn't appear, he appears to be level. If you look at the mouth, and now he's, yep. I mean, with everything wrong with the movie, I would have liked a single acknowledgement of his name from her. Just the way they played it. I would have liked that. How'd she get down from the top of the building? Who brought her down? Have she and Jack seen each other? Where's the story? Oh, we're not going for a story. We're going for the most effective scene we possibly can in the shortest amount of time as possible. That's the thing about this version of Kong is it's really tight for what it is. It's not as long as The Towering Inferno. It's not 147. It's not 157. It's one it's 130 it's yeah, it's 134 minutes. It's as fast as you can do it in the 70s sort of melodrama. I love how they just, like, swarm her. And here we go. The screenplay ends with them getting together. This doesn't. And it's always like, but don't they get together? (sighs) 
And look what stardom has cost them all. Look what it's cost them all. Oh, and then the mayor got her. And she's going to be a star. But she doesn't want to be a star. She wants Jack. But Jack's not willing to fight for her anymore. Why won't he go to her? This is what stardom has cost. Blah, blah, blah. And then the Jacks on the soundtrack are just way too much. Because what does it just try to do in this sequence? It just tried to make it about... uh, It's... It can't... It can't work like that. And it's like... Then you have this shot, which sort of saves it. Boom. The music starts... It calls back. This is really classy. This is very classy. Construction with special contributions by Rick Baker, who did more than anybody else. There we go. It's just... um, John Lone, told you. Just the way they do it is just so... Classy for the finish, and it doesn't. St- and the movie doesn't stop, right? Like, I always was trying to see in this shot if Jack and Dwan got together, but I, I imagine it pan and scan, and and it's even more impossible. So. I don't know. It's uh, It's been a while since I've seen the 76 King Kong. Yeah, by the way, I had no idea what I was going to talk about during end credits, so I guess I still will uh, talk. But then you've got, look at that, you've got hair design for Kong. But uh, I think I watched it on HD DVD, and I managed to get that working again, but I couldn't watch it for this. Because I um, I don't know how the timing works, and I didn't re- want to really figure out how the timing worked. Look at that, Bulgari. Really quick credits. Have we even done a cast list? Yep, here we go. So cast of characters coming after your MPAA logo, which seems weird. So John Lone is the Chinese cook who you ever who you only ever see um, massaging, and that's it. No, this movie was rated PG, which is too bad. I know that some of the Jaws movies still have those on the DVD. Um, well, I hope that was somewhat entertaining, and if you've been wondering for however long it's been since I posted my King Kong review, why the heck I like that movie. Those might be some of the reasons that I like it. And I'll be back next month on Friday, March 20th, another uh, Friday in March, or another 20th on a Friday, with The Razor's Edge from 1946, directed by Edmund Goulding. That one was suggested by a reader, so I'm going to check that out for a commentary. should be interesting.
Um, thanks for listening. I have no idea how this went. So if you have any suggestions, please, um, you can contact me through the stop button.com, uh, or on Twitter at the stop button. And of course you can leave an iTunes comment at the, uh, in the iTunes store on the podcast listing there. So once again, this has been the first episode of Stop Button Favorites. I'm Andrew Wycliffe. My site is thestopbutton.com. And thanks for listening.